this morning, I'm well aware that the countdown has begun to the 425 kickoff. So I will pray for us for special grace to be present in this moment and to hear God's word. But it's a good day for us. And so as we pray this morning, let's ask God for help. Bow your heads with me as we pray. Our Lord, all flesh is like grass and all of its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flowers, they all fall. But the word of the Lord remains forever. No matter what may fail in this world, no matter what fades and dies, your word, O oh God, lasts forever. And so, our Lord, would you help us to believe in your eternal, your unfading word in these moments? These moments are precious. They are powerful. There are moments where we can actually hear from the living God. And so we pray that you would infuse your glorious word into these hearts of flesh that are slow to believe and quick to wander. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would pierce through the darkness of this world with the brightness of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that we would have hearts to believe, so would you open up our hearts, unblock our ears, open our eyes, that we might hear and, and, and believe and see Jesus Christ and all that he has brought into this world. To the praise of God, it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. November and December are really uh, wonderful months. A lot of people love these months because there's, there's holidays and there's moments where we get to spend time with one another. Uh, not only is it the second half of the Eagles football season where the things get really tight and the games start to really matter, but you can also gorge on food as much as you want and eat all kinds of pumpkin desserts and coffees. You can make snowmen outside. You can spend time with friends and family. Just tons and tons of time. You have days off from work. You have days off from school. It's a really joyful and cheerful time for a lot of us. It's, it's a season filled with delight and wonder and, and marvel. It's a wonderful season, November, December, this winter season filled with holidays. But if we were to be honest, these months can also be very misleading and really difficult for a lot of us as well. Right? The holiday songs that are supposed to bring cheer and the picturesque moments that you see on TV around a dinner table often don't happen in these seasons for us, though we want them to. Uh, because behind all of the colorful lights, behind all of the wonderful songs that you hear on the radio or when you walk down the mall, there is a harsh reality that covers all of it. That's sort of a shadow behind this bright Christmas season. Uh, there's a darkness that no Christmas light can brighten or no gloomy heart can ever cheer. There's a reality in which we live even during a season like this. In Seven Mile Road, I think as the year comes to a close, it's a reality that perhaps you, I know I have reflected on many times over the past few months because we've been living, even as a congregation here, in some really dark months and dark seasons of life. We've experienced some of the darkness of this life and so the simple reality, the harsh reality that I want to talk through and be honest with, uh, with one another and before God, is the harsh reality of suffering in this world. It's the last Sunday of the year. It's not the most cheerful topic, but it's a reality of life that we've got to face. And I think especially as we close out this year, it would be good and right for us to consider there is suffering in the world. We live in suffering. Our congregation, people within this room, have faced immense suffering even this year. I'm hoping today that we can be honest about our suffering as we have suffered and as we have walked alongside others who have suffered 
this year. It's been a hard year, hasn't it? It's been a trying year for us physically, mentally, spiritually. In many ways, we have suffered. I can't tell you this past, these past few months especially how many times I've received news of someone in our congregation this year experiencing something that has made me pause, close my eyes, and shake my head in just sadness and grief and helplessness. No matter how good your life and my life may be going, things can change in an instance with the snap of a finger, with the blink of an eye. No one, no one in this room, no one in this world can ever escape the inevitability of suffering in this world, no matter how far we've come in life, no matter what family we come from, no matter what job we might have or what zip code you might live in, suffering meets us all. Suffering meets the homeless beggar on the street corner, but it also meets kings and queens upon their throne. Suffering meets the Hindu worshiper at the temple, the devoted Muslim in the mosque, the atheist who claims no religion, but suffering even meets Christians, Jesus-following Christians, perhaps like you and like me. We are not immune from suffering. And I think that reality is so difficult for us to process and to understand because shouldn't we, right, if we're thinking sort of insanely, shouldn't we, of all people, be immune and be kept from the sufferings of this world? Because we believe in and trust in Christ. There are people in this room who have lost jobs, experienced abuse, struggle with illnesses, endure great pain, and have even buried friends and loved ones this year. So the question I want to ask you is this. What does the Christian do with the harsh reality of suffering in this life? When you're confronted with suffering of any kind, what do you do as a Christian is there any solace that we can have in this life when we endure suffering? Well, I want us to consider God's word this morning to help us begin to understand and answer those questions. We'll be in 2 Corinthians 4, the passage that Jake read for us. We're going to mainly be camped out in verses 16 to 18. And if you have a Bible, turn with me there. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we're going to mainly be in verses 16 to 18. Here's what Paul says in these verses. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So Paul begins this small section by saying, so we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. But can I ask you, how do you not lose heart when the only certainties in life, it seems like, are suffering and death? How do you not lose heart in a dark and broken world like this? And what I want us to see is that Paul, to answer this question, what he essentially does in this passage is he makes us look to the future to make sense of the present. Paul wants us to see the future to make sense of the present. And I want to show us three things from this passage that Paul shows us and that God wants to show us today. First, it's the certainty of suffering. Second, the surprise of suffering. And third, the glory of suffering. So first, the certainty of suffering. Paul says in verse 16, We do not lose heart. 
though our outer self is wasting away. We don't lose heart for our outer self is wasting away. In the Bible, you have this reminder over and over again that the world around us is fleeting and that it is fading. It's not going to last. Uh, for example, the author of Ecclesiastes is a man who possessed every possible thing that you could imagine and every possible thing you would want in this world. Uh, he had massive, ho massive homes covered with marble, decked out with big screen TVs and vineyards that you could see for acres and acres. He had every pleasure you could imagine. At the snap of a finger, anybody would bring him anything that he wanted. Who wouldn't want that kind of a life? Immaculate vineyards. Entertainment, as much as he wanted. He indulged in everything and anything that he could. Who wouldn't want that life? But in the end of everything, we read and we've read in the book of Ecclesiastes that this man who had everything concluded that everything, every earthly pursuit is meaningless. And we said last year as we preached through the book of Ecclesiastes that this man that has tried to chase happiness and tried to find meaning and pleasure and satisfaction, the Hebrew word hevel described to sort of connote this idea like it's trying to grasp at the wind. You can never hold on to it. As soon as you grasp it, you open your hand and it's gone. You can't find happiness in the things of this world. You can't do it. As soon as you think you've got it, it's gone. Uh, but it's not just thousands of years ago that people have felt this. It's not just the writer of Ecclesiastes that has come to this conclusion. Uh, we've said before, it's Jim Carrey who once said, I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything that they had ever dreamed of so that they can see it's not the answer. Have everything you possibly could have imagined and realize at the end of that, for a man like Jim Carrey, who has everything that he could possibly want, accomplished everything he could possibly accomplish, to know at the end of that, it's not the answer. It's not the answer. It's why rich people want more money. It's why football players want more rings. Why you and I never seem to be satisfied with earthly things on this world. That's the reality of this life. It's why Jesus himself says that putting your hope in the accomplishments and treasures of this world is a short-lived pursuit with temporary gains at best. Jesus says in Matthew 6 that moths come in and they eat your clothes. He says that rust eventually destroys the things that you spend your money on. He says that thieves break in and steal what you value and what you treasure. Everything in this world is wasting away. It doesn't matter how much hope you and I put into this world. It won't last. It won't last. It will not last. And this morning, even deeper than that, though, Paul is telling us here that not only is the world around us wasting away, not only is the world around us wasting away our things like our homes and possessions, but we ourselves are wasting away. We ourselves are wasting away. Your heart, I've heard, is not like a clock that is plugged into the wall and forever powered. That's not the way that our bodies work. Your heart is more like a wind-up clock that is turned once. It's turned once, wound up in the mother's womb, and it has a certain amount of ticks in it. It's ticking even now. It's ticking. It's ticking, and it has a certain amount of ticks in it. Your physical beauty is wearing away. Your strength is slowly fading. Your skills may not be as precise as they once were. I'm not that old, but I can barely mow the lawn without spraining my ankle. And I literally did that a couple of months ago, mowing the lawn, spraining my ankle. When I play football now, my recovery time is two to three weeks. 
I can't get up off of the couch. I can't walk. I can't run. I mean, I'm not that old, but I feel my body decaying and growing tired and weary. Uh, Many of us have parents who are now aging, and we are beginning to see the toll that time takes on the body, that just time takes on the body. And it's it's uh, heart-wrenching to see some of that happen. Our bodies, they're wasting away, and they remind us, unfortunately, that every day the clock is ticking. The clock is ticking. We'll be closer to that moment at the end of the service than we were at the beginning. And it's a sad and daunting thought, but it's the reality of life. We live in a world with broken bones and with migraines, with mental illness and debilitating cancer. We live in a world with pain and suffering that our mortal bodies will experience. And suffering in this world is perhaps the most real and apparent thing that you can ever bank on, right? You you know suffering and death is coming. It's a harsh reality of this life. To not belabor the point and get the room further down, I won't go any further to convince you of the reality of suffering, the certainty of suffering in this life. It's real and it's apparent. But not only is suffering a reality, because secondly, Paul wants to show us that two, there is a surprise in suffering. The surprise of suffering. Paul is writing this letter to a people, to a church who is actually questioning Paul's credibility as an apostle. Right? Paul is an apostle of Christ, called by Christ to go and preach the word, establish churches. And these people that Paul is writing this letter to in Corinth, they're starting to question Paul's credibility as an apostle. Imagine that. They're questioning Paul. Paul, the writer of Scripture. Paul, the one who is called by Christ himself, a man of God. They are questioning Paul's credibility. So the natural question that comes to your mind is why? Uh, Why are these young new Christians in Corinth questioning Paul's credibility? Well, one of the reasons they are questioning his credibility is because Paul's life is replete with suffering and heartache and pain of every kind. His life is replete full of pain and suffering. And you can almost hear these new young Christians begin to ask out loud or in their heads, how can God really be with a man who has had to face all of this suffering? Surely if God is with you, Paul, you wouldn't be experiencing any of this. Surely God is not with you. Surely God is not for you if you are going through this suffering. Can you feel the disconnect that this, these early uh, Corinthian Christians are feeling? Paul experiencing pain and suffering and yet claiming that God is with him and that he he is a follower of God. They are baffled, surprised that a man of faith who even claims to be an apostle of Christ suffers so horribly. I've been reflecting a lot on the life of Paul but also on the life of Job from the Old Testament. Job who's a man from the Old Testament over these past couple of months even as our congregation has been in this season of suffering. And in some ways, what is happening to Paul is what is happening to Job. Sort of the things that have happened to Paul happened to Job in what way? What happened to Job when everything was taken from him? Uh, What began to happen with the people around him? When his possessions and his, his health and even his very family, his whole family taken away from him. What happened? Job's friends were certain. We're absolutely certain that this could not possibly happen to a man who was walking with God. 
this level of suffering, this heartache, this struggle, this, this heartache that, that Job is feeling has to be something more than just uh, natural or a part of life. There has to be something cosmic, something spiritual behind this. As Job's life becomes this path of misery, this unending path of misery, Job's friends, they come and place the blame squarely on what Job has done or what Job has not done. Uh, here's some of the things that they say in the book of Job. They say, think, Job, who that is innocent have ever perished. Uh, they say, when are the upright ever cut off? They say to Job, God won't reject you if you're blameless. And he also won't take your hand if you're evil. To them, it's very simple. And to make matters worse, as if that's not enough, his friends go on to accuse him of things he's never done, things they just make up to explain why Job is suffering so much. They say, you haven't given water to the thirsty or given bread to the hungry. That's probably why this is happening. They say, you've sent widows away empty-handed and have crushed the arms of orphans. They start just putting together reasons, possibly, for why Job is experiencing this level of suffering. They essentially say, Job, your suffering is because of you. You're suffering because of you. You've done something wrong. You haven't done what you're supposed to do. You're suffering because God must be angry with you. You're suffering because of you. Job is so tired of their unhelpful advice that he eventually says in chapter 16, it's, it's quite humorous, he says, you are miserable comforters. He says in chapter 16, you are miserable comforters, all of you. I'm in pain, suffering, and this is the, this is the support that you give me. This, these are the words of, of counsel that you have to give to me. If you're suffering, Job's friends would be the last people that you would call in for support. I mean, they just drill him deeper and deeper into suffering. And they put the weight on him. Now, it would be inaccurate for us to say that there aren't examples in the Bible of judgment from God brought for sin, because there are. Uh, it would also be inaccurate to say that suffering isn't because of sin, right? If, if all suffering, if all evil, all pain, all death, all of it has come into this world because of sin, then suffering and evil and all of this exists because of sin, because of our first parents, Adam and Eve. Listen, suffering can come as a result of sin. Look, if you uh, have sinned and gotten drunk, got into a car and T-boned a car in the middle of an intersection, listen, you are suffering because of sin. And on the flip side, you could also suffer because of the sin of that drunk driver who crashed into your car even though you did nothing wrong. Suffering can come as a result of sin. You could suffer because of your sin and you can suffer because of the sin of someone else. That's a part of the brokenness that we live in in this world. So in one sense, yes, suffering could come from sin. But it would also be too much to say that all suffering and death is directly from sin. And this is the, this is the error that Job's friends go into. This is perhaps the error that these Corinthian Christians are surmising in their minds. And yet, suffering... Is such a terrible experience in life that the only question that sometimes naturally comes into our mind when we witness suffering could be, what did that person do to deserve this? Is God mad at them? Why would God let this happen? Even if our, 
our theology is somewhat right, our minds naturally go into, why does that person deserve this? Why are they suffering in this way? Listen, when you suffer, when you suffer, you don't need friends of Job, friends like Job's friends to come and accuse you. We can do that all on our own. We can actually accuse ourselves. We are completely capable of doing that, aren't we? Anyone who has tasted the sour and bitter taste of suffering has likely wondered in anguish. What have I done to deserve this? Why am I experiencing this suffering? And when you can't think you, you can go any deeper, the, the ground beneath you begins to crumble. And you go into depths of sorrow you never imagined possible. Your whole life feels like a life of suffering. Because the suffering itself is bad enough, right? It's one thing that you experience this, this suffering, whatever it might be. But sometimes the challenge to trust in God seems just as challenging. It's one thing if you were to experience suffering. But then the challenge to trust in God through your suffering. My goodness, that the toll it takes on your soul and on your heart and on your mind. Have you ever agonized over the suffering of your life or over the sufferings of the lives of others? And looked upwards to heaven and asked, what's the end game here? What's the plan at the end of all of this, God? What is the plan with all of this suffering? Be it suffering of the body, suffering of the mind, the suffering of lost loved ones, or even the suffering of feeling lost and abandoned. Friends, are the sufferings of this world not utterly crippling at times for us? I mean, it's one of those things that can just come into your world and rock everything, change the way you think about everything because it has that kind of power. And you and I, we know, are in really good company to feel some of these things because the Psalms are filled with suffering people with lots of questions. It's filled with people like that. So we need not feel odd or unusual because godly people in the Scriptures have felt the same thing, but... Here's something I want us to hear, lest we have a false understanding of this Christian life. Here's something I want us to hear, lest we have a false understanding of this Christian life. Uh, somehow, over time, perhaps especially in the past few decades, Christians have subscribed to the false idea that God only intends Christians to only prosper in this world, to have things like health and wealth and success and happiness. As I read from one author this week, tragically, the prosperity gospel has poisoned the church and undermined our ability to deal with evil and suffering. Some churches today have no place for pain. Those who say God has healed them get the microphone, while who, those who are continuing to suffer are shamed into silence and put out the back door. It seems to them that God's will is for everyone to be healed always. The faithful will never suffer. And this is an idea that has crept into the church. And what I want us to hear is that if you think this, if we buy into this lie, we have no ability, no handles in which to understand our suffering or to deal with evil in this world. Because in fact, the Christian life is actually a life that is marked with suffering. The Christian life is not a life void of suffering. The Christian life is actually a life that is marked with suffering. In the same chapter, chapter 2, verses 4, what does Paul say in verses, uh, chapter 4, verses 8 and 9? What does he say there? Paul says that we are those who are afflicted. 
We are those who are perplexed. We are those who are persecuted. We are those who are struck down. Does that sound like the life of a Christian without intense suffering, without intense heartache? Does that sound like the gospel that we often hear, the false gospel that we often hear promising us health and wealth and prosperity? Hear me. Everyone has a theology of suffering. All of us do. Everyone has an idea, a theology of suffering. Your theology of suffering will determine how you respond when you and others suffer in this world. And if your theology of suffering and my theology of suffering says that Christians do not suffer, then you and I will be crushed, driven to utter despair, feel forsaken, and be destroyed when you and I face suffering. If that's what we believe of suffering, we will be destroyed by it. We will have no idea how to deal with it. We will have no idea how to deal with God. We would have no idea how to counsel others. We would have no idea how to tell younger ones of suffering and evil when they happen. We have no handles if that's our theology of suffering. Being a Christian, friends, it does not mean that you and I are immune from the sufferings of this world. I really wish it did. I really wish that this world was like that, but it's not. Hurricanes and cancer and mass shootings, and broken families, and abuse, and Alzheimer's, and floods, and organ failure happen to all people all over the world, and it does not discriminate with the Christian and the one who is not a Christian. Suffering happens to all. Do not be surprised, dear brothers and sisters, when you endure suffering in this world as though something strange were happening to you. That's what the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 4.12. One of the things I love about the Bible, and perhaps you've noticed it if you've skimmed through the Bible, is that it doesn't try to sugarcoat or hide from the harsh realities of suffering in this world and death in this world, as hard as they might be. Right? If you were inventing a religion, wouldn't you remove the things that were harder to read and harder to digest, stories like suffering and death? And wouldn't you only include stories of joy and triumph? But in the Bible... You have a righteous man like Joseph who was sold into slavery by his own brothers. You have a godly woman in Naomi who loses everything, including her husband and her sons. You have David, who the Bible says is a man after God's own heart. David even loses a young baby boy to illness and death. And the Bible painstakingly records it. Painstakingly records it. It's harsh. There's death. There's suffering all over the Bible. So we've said that one, yes, there is a certainty in suffering. It will happen. We can't avoid it. Two, that suffering is surprising, that it even happens to people who trust in and believe in God. Lastly and thankfully, the third thing is that there is great glory in our suffering. There is glory in suffering. Paul says in Verse 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This is a puzzling verse to me because you normally wouldn't use words like affliction and glory in the same sentence this way. 
You usually wouldn't pit those two words up against each other. When Paul thinks about the sufferings of this world, his perspective is not, as we've said in the beginning, just on the present, but his perspective is on the future as well. He has, he has a life that's walking this earth, but it's not just looking directly, horizontally at the things that are happening. His perspective is in the future. He's looking upwards. And notice what two words Paul chooses to describe the sufferings of this present world. What two words does Paul use to describe the sufferings of this present world? He says that it's light and momentary. But compare those to the words that he uses to describe the glory of the world to come. What two words does he use for that? Weighty and eternal. Look at the way he uses this contrast, these polar opposite words. Two words to describe the sufferings of this world and the life of the world to come. This world's suffering, light and momentary. The life of the world to come, weighty and eternal. And as you read that, it may feel like to you that Paul is simply diminishing the reality of suffering in this world, right? Paul, maybe he doesn't know what suffering really is like for you and I on the ground. Perhaps he's diminishing it, like he's saying, get over it. It's not as bad as you think. It'll get better. You'll be fine. It could feel like Paul is simply diminishing that. But I would submit that Paul is not trying to downplay the sufferings of this world as if they are not real or horrific. I would say that he's not trying to downplay. Instead, Paul is trying to elevate the glory. He's not trying to diminish your suffering and my suffering. Instead, he's trying to elevate the glory. As I heard one preacher say, we spend lots of time on the gravity of our suffering instead of on the gravity of eternal glory. I'll say that again. We spend a lot of time on the gravity of our suffering instead of on the gravity of eternal glory. Now, it would be one thing for me to say the sufferings of this world are light and momentary. It'd be one thing for me to say that. Uh, because if I were to be honest, I've experienced some suffering, but not much, and especially not as much as others in the world and folks in this very room who have experienced real suffering. But thankfully, it's not me who has written this letter to the church in Corinth. Who is it that is writing, writing this letter? It's Paul. And what has Paul endured in his life? We've already talked through this a couple of months ago. He's a man who was beaten and imprisoned several times for following Jesus. He's been whipped and he's been stoned and even shipwrecked. He has faced starvation. He's faced dehydration. And eventually the culmination of a life that Paul would live would end in his beheading. His life would end in his martyrdom for following Jesus. That's not a glamorous life. It's not a life of health and wealth and prosperity. This is not a life of glory on this earth. And if you were to ask Paul during his last moments of his life, Paul, after a lifetime's worth of misery and suffering, what do you have to say? And I'd imagine he'd say exactly what he says here. It's light and momentary. Why, Paul? And I'd imagine that he'd say, because of the eternal glory the eternal weight of glory that awaits us. I'd imagine for Paul, as he is suffering in this world, he is not putting on the shelf his theology of suffering and of the world to come. He sees his present with the future in mind. 
suffering for Paul is not devoid of what's to come. It's very much in light of what's to come. Now, Paul says something similar to this in Romans 8, 18, when he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. He says something very similar there, right? Paul is saying in Romans that the suffering we experience today will be outweighed by future glory. Right? That the sufferings you and I experience today, they're going to be outweighed by future glory. And that is an absolutely wonderful and sure hope that we have as Christians. That future glory in comparison to present suffering, it's not even worth comparing. But I want us to see that Paul says something much more profound than just that here in 2 Corinthians 4.17. He's not just saying that the future glory will, in comparison, be so much better than the present suffering. As I've heard one preacher say, Paul is saying that no, not only are your sufferings on this earth momentary, not only are your sufferings light in comparison to the weight of glory awaiting you, not only is that true, but Paul says that the sufferings of your life are actually producing the glory that awaits you. You've got to hear that. Not only in comparison is it going to be greater, but your very suffering is producing the weight of glory. Your suffering, every ounce of suffering that you experience is actually preparing for us, producing for us the glory. That's what he says in verse 17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing, producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Think of that. Your suffering in this world is actually working towards achieving this eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's not just what's on the other side that's better, but there is a mysterious, a profound, precious glory somehow, some way, when we reach the other shore, that we will look back at all that has happened and see that glory in light of what, we have ha what has happened to us. And that will be the very thing that is producing for us the weight of glory. He will truly turn our mourning into dancing and our sorrows into immense joy. That is what awaits us. What this means for us today in your suffering and mine is that no experience of suffering in your life is meaningless. No death, no sickness, no suffering that you and I experience are meaningless. You may not see it, you may not feel it, but every single second of pain is creating for you an exceptional and profound glory beyond all comparison that is completely and totally meaningful. Verse 18 says that we don't look to the things that we can see, but to what we cannot see. What do we see? Only suffering. What do we not see? Only glory. And Paul is urging us not to look to our suffering to make sense of this life, but he's telling us, he's urging us to look to the glory to make sense of our suffering. He's saying, don't look to your suffering to make sense of your life. He's saying, look to the glory to make sense of your suffering. There is an eternal weight of glory that your suffering is producing for you. And as unthinkable as it will be, we will one day look back at our lives that are full of sorrow, full of suffering, and with absolute confidence say that that life was light and momentary, like a blink of an eye. But oh, this weight of glory, every tear was worth it all. Every pain somehow will be worth it all. 
Listen, as we close, there is a lot about the Christian life that is offensive, that is scandalous. It often goes against all the things that you would normally think the life should look like and how it should be explained. In fact, perhaps you're wondering still, how could we ever say that suffering and death can lead to anything good in this world or beyond it? How can we ever say that? Especially when we see so much tragedy all around us, when we've weeped with those who have lost loved ones, when we have walked and sat beside and endured ourselves unthinkable suffering. How can suffering and death ever lead to anything good in this world or beyond it? Well, I simply want us to look to one man who suffered unthinkably, who was lashed with whips and beaten mercilessly. Uh, was there not one man who suffered unjustly, without any reason? Was this man not tortured and crucified, killed and buried? And yet, through this one man's most awful suffering and unjust death, has life and salvation not been the result for all who believe in him? Has death and suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ not produced immense good for this world, immense good for you and I? And not only that, this man, Jesus Christ, chose to enter our suffering so that one day you and I would no longer suffer. He has entered into your suffering so that your very suffering would one day be put to an end. He wore the crown. He accepted the nails and endured the cross knowing that his suffering would be producing a glory for you beyond all comparison. God did not ignore your suffering. God did not give us mere platitudes to cheer us up when you and I suffered. That's not all he did. No, Jesus entered into your suffering. He tasted your sadness and mine. Jesus was born to suffer, conceived to die. Jesus dying was not a meaningless death. It was a death-conquering death. The hope that we have in this Christmas season, this holiday season for those who mourn and for those who suffer is that in Christ, yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. That there is a hope for us because of Jesus Christ. We fall on our knees. A weary world rejoices. We praise his holy name. Why? For Christ Jesus comes into a world to flip the script on suffering and death by his own death and suffering. That is what he has come to do in light of the suffering of this world. Death and suffering become the very means by which we will be eradicated of death and suffering. Seven Mile Road, your sufferings, your pain, none of it is meaningless. It's doing something for you. It doesn't mean that when you suffer, you won't experience unthinkable pain. It doesn't mean that when you suffer, you don't ask God to take this away from you. It doesn't mean that we don't pray fervently for those who are suffering in our midst. But with Paul, we say... We may be afflicted, but we will not be crushed. We may be perplexed, but we will not be driven to utter despair. We may be persecuted, but listen, we will not be forsaken. We may even be struck down, but lo and behold, we will never be destroyed. That is the hope of the gospel. That is the hope that we have because of Jesus Christ. Suffering will not crush you. It will not destroy you. God will not forsake you. For we have a real God who has come into a real world, lived a real life, died a real death, rose again, and he's taking us with him. He is taking us with him into this glory where we will forever live with him, along with all the saints throughout history, the folks that we have lost and suffered with. 
There is an eternal weight of glory being prepared for you and me. Listen, Job lost everything. He lost everything. And there's not many reasons to stay on the road when you lose things like that, when you suffer in this world. But as we enter this New Year Seven Mile Road, do not lose heart. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we enter this new year, our hope is not in a year filled with victory that is void of suffering. But instead, come what may, may Christ be glorified through every joy and through every suffering. Like Job that we might say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That we would say with Job, though he slay me, yet I will trust and hope in God. May that be the things that are on our lips, the songs that are on our lips, even as we walk this hard road marked with suffering. May we await that day with great confidence and hope in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Lord, fill us with faith in this moment. When we think about suffering and when we think about evil and death, oh, how the enemy would want to come in and devour our faith. And yet, even like Job, you sustain. Even like Paul, you sustain. Even at death, oh God, you sustain. And so we pray, oh Holy Spirit, that you would come in and anchor this word into our hearts. Convince us, oh God, by your Spirit that there is an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison awaiting those who trust and hope in Jesus Christ. And when we get to the other shore and when we look back, somehow, some way, we will see this life and all of its sufferings as light and momentary. We await that day. We await that day when morning will come and the Son of God in brightness and in robes will welcome us in into eternal glory to enjoy him forever, and to worship him. We long for that day, and would you comfort our hearts for those who are suffering in this moment. Console us, comfort us, encourage us. We need your grace, especially as we suffer. So do that work, O oh Lord, even in this moment. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.